Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gateway, brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business, where your future is without boundaries and our approach is too. I am joined, as always, with my incredible co-host, Dr. Biagio Palese. Hey, Biagio, how are you? Ciao a tutti, welcome. This one is going to be a fun one, so I'm very excited to, to this one. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are. So today's episode from Mario to Master Chief, how to develop a video game. We will explore the estimated $86 billion video game industry, which Zalavir has made all of that money and he is worth all of that money integrally. So, so just know that if you ever need someone to buy you a drink, he will be here for that. Um, but I definitely want to explore kind of the shift between coming from maybe playing with a controller to creating the content in the actual video game. So to help us do that, uh, we have Zalavir Nelson Jr. Nelson Jr. is a BAFTA nominated studio head, narrative director and writer with dozens of titles under his belt, including Reigns Beyond, Hypno Space Outlaw, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator, which I am currently playing on Xbox Game Pass, which I think is absolutely awesome. So anyone out there who's bored tonight, definitely check that out. And then El Paso Elsewhere. He is also making strides in a burgeoning storytelling career outside of games with releases such as the cult hit comic Sherlock Holmes Hunts the Mothman. Zalavir, welcome to The Gateway. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to jump in right at the beginning where everyone else kind of starts and, and where we really want to kind of find who you are and where this is going. What, what was your journey like to creating video games, to being in this industry? I think there's a lot of um, almost like mythical lore about getting into that stuff and, and you're actually in there. So, so what's that, that experience like or what was it like for you? For every single person I know, the journey can be deeply divergent and you will find all types of disciplines and uh, undergraduate and masters and doctorate backgrounds eventually finding their way into games because it is so multidisciplinary and benefits so much from divergent perspectives being involved in the development process. So the way I started was uh, as a journalist because Around the age of 12, I read that games journalists get games for free and not thinking about rent or career advancement. I was like, oh, yeah, the perfect job. Become a games journalist. Fantastic. I didn't like writing. I basically hadn't written a paper up until then. Uh, and yet somehow, don't know what this says about the medium, but uh, yeah, at the age of 12, I pretended to be an adult so I could get a get job as a games journalist and it somehow worked. And I've been here ever since. I'm trapped here. Someone please say. <laughs> <laughs> that just shows, I think, the foundation of all of the wonderful things of video games. Imagination. If you can fake it, you can make it and you can get there and have an awesome experience with that one. So so I want to go into more of that. What was that like starting out? And, and do you remember like your first assignment? What were you do? What was that whole experience about or like, I guess? A lot of it was understanding the underlying rules of the discipline, especially in how it interacted with press relations professionals, marketing, the uh, ideas and ideals connected to journalism in the gaming space. It's one of the reasons I was deeply skeptical when later uh, controversies emerged around such things like 
ethics and games journalism because I had personally experienced and seen the degree to which games journalists <laughs> rob themselves of uh, profit enhancing opportunities, including just going anywhere else to make more money because of their passion for the medium. Uh, saying people accusing people of uh, being paid off to say nice things about a game when a lot of games journalists I know are intentionally living off of ramen to both uphold an ethical foundation and also because there isn't a great culture of providing profit for those who adds to the critical landscape around video games that's necessary for the medium to grow uh, was very eye-opening and it was a fascinating starting point for gaining context of what the medium uh, becomes and what its patterns are because when you come in as say a college age person, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to be exploited by a wider industry, uh, it can be easy to take for granted what games represents or how much of the $86 billion uh, I have personally earned and own that you can yourself lay claim to a small chunk of. of. And the thing that is fascinating to discover is if you've started early enough or just survived long enough, you get to see the games industry repeat itself because it happens in three to five year cycles. So by the time I was 18, ready to uh, actually be an adult, I was actually going to leave the medium entirely because I had already seen several waves of developers, peers, uh, mentors, people I deeply respected and looked up to in the field or saw as you know, unachievable targets of success, burn out, disappear from the face of the earth, in general, uh, find their cultural and industry relevance diluted to the point of no return. That's a terrifying winnowing to witness, especially when you are a kid, essentially. So I was going to leave uh, and uh, put my childish things behind me and find a, a different, more stable uh, field to found my future upon. But before I did that, I decided I would make one game to get it out of my system. Might as well try making one game. I ended up finding a uh, language and engine that worked with the way that my brain did. It was called Twine. Uh, made the game with a zero dollar budget because it's what I had. And I made it. I released it. It was called All Hail the Spider God. It's still available for free online somewhere. I think it's itch.io. And uh, upon releasing it and seeing that people really liked it, I was like, oh, no. They got me now. I'm in it. Uh, because it turned out that making games uh, was the thing that renewed my fuel for being in the creative field as a whole. Um, I think the thing that I am deeply grateful to God for is that I always have the perspective of what keeps me in this medium, not just what gets my foot through the door. So uh, I thought that writing about games and getting games for free would be the thing that kept me in and that kept me uh, spiritually, creatively, and financially fulfilled. Uh, and then it became writing for games. Uh, so I transitioned from this game built in twine which is an interactive fiction platform 
to writing for other games, mainly in a text uh, format uh, or providing the text elements of a game to narrative design, which often mixes writing actual text that goes into the game or a script or dialogue or what have you with taking all of the elements in a game into consideration uh, and basically uh, owning and collaborating from the perspective of how do these things work together to tell the wider story and vision for the game. And then I realized I didn't particularly care whether or not the story was good. What I cared about was the game getting finished with the maximum quality possible given our constraints and with minimal cost to human life, which is often taken for granted in the games industry at large. And that led me to multi-class into things like business development, production, marketing design. And now I occupy this very weird intersection of skills and uh, priorities where every day I wake up and I don't quite know what my day is going to look like. I run a studio. I still do narrative design and writing. Sometimes I even write about games. I give interviews and do lectures for academic purposes as well as for general audiences. Uh, I went around the world running absurd LARPs. I essentially have found the exact niche that fits what my skill set is and what I care about and what I can do exceptionally well. And uh, I feel very blessed and fortunate to every day find new ways to explore those boundaries and to find what intersection of uh, passion I can occupy next. and I absolutely love when video games are elevated to the space I actually believe they should have been treated for a very long time that 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 critical claim of being able to actually say we're, we're saying something we're showing something we're doing something and, and giving different perspectives out there that maybe some of the more traditional mediums for at least entertainment movies tvs music things like that might not be able to do as much is there for you where you're at in your career is there something that you would you would like to be able to bridge within video games something you would like to be able to see them do or something just wildest fantasies what you would like to see kind of that next step be i think the chief area of innovation in video games has to be production methodology because with the opportunities afforded to us by a digital world and landscape and digital distribution there is an exponential explosion of the types of things we could be building. And in particular, the flexibility and exponential number of ways in which they could be built. Uh, everything from production methodologies to uh, collaboration strategies, to business arrangements, to uh, the way in which you interact with your audience directly and indirectly. I see this, uh, multitudinous web of possibilities expanding further and further and further outward but it feels like games has if only because it's been proven in a couple of ways honed in on a couple of uh general strategies that we uh paddle around like the the shallow end of a pool uh when we're surrounded by this ocean of possibility so the thing that i'm deeply passionate about is investigating to an exuberant and perhaps uh, over the top degree, how can a game be built? What are ways we can organize our methodologies, our teams, our 
business arrangements, uh, even the way in which a publishing deal is structured to explore new frontiers of what game development and distribution could be. Because as these exponential possibilities exist and emerge, I'm instead seeing this possibility space atrophy or only grow in fits and starts. And I'm impatient to see our medium recognize the full power and possibility that is at our fingertips right now. Uh, I think a primary... Hmm? Yeah, so are you saying that you, you would like to see more people, like kind of like a um, decentralization of the game development, kind of broadening that scope so more people can get involved? Or I just want to make sure I'm understanding that correctly. So if we're just going to talk about, say, production methodologies, right? So putting aside things about like uh, business arrangements or distribution strategies, if we're just talking about production, uh, the way in which a production for a game is organized is often not dependent on the project itself. It's dependent on the structure that the project is shoved into. So as opposed to uh, this production strategy for a game coming from the bottom up, what works best for the game, from the, for the team to build a very specific thing in a way that is healthy, fast, and efficient. Uh, as well as with a quality focused uh, mindset that comes usually from the top down. Uh, and these top down structures are standardized and are offering limited flexibility often in what they can accommodate. And that's a big reason why uh, we have at Strange Scaffold, my studio had limited interaction with publishers, not because people aren't uh, trying to bang down our door because they definitely are. But because uh, I am so passionate about this specific approach towards development, how can we make games better, faster, cheaper, and healthier? How much experimentation is possible within that? That um, not being able to fully explore what those possibilities are because we have signed on with the publisher and that publisher has a way they do, they do things and the project itself cannot uh, have a process that enables its creation uniquely. I, yeah, we, we, we choose to forge that path on our own instead often. Um, and when we do find kindred spirits, we really value that because, uh, yeah, I do believe that video games are a medium that is uniquely capable of enabling marginalized people and uh, anyone of basically any background to take their lottery, uh, their lottery ticket and attempt to build something incredible or to build sustainable and ongoing relationships with customers and with their own creativity. But this is instead being uh, swept out from underneath uh, our feet by a medium that says essentially, well, why would we put sound in movies? They like silent films so much. Why would we put color in movies? The, the black and white cells, we don't know what this color thing is gonna do. That's the approach we're applying to distribution strategy, uh, production methodology and uh, business arrangements. And frankly, it's ridiculous. So yeah, I 
I have a lot of thoughts in this moment. I think I think what you are already sharing with us is is already very useful for everybody that is passionate about video games. I can share personally. I didn't play video games in a long, long time, but I was a big fan of video games growing up. Uh, I think two points that you made uh, are are extremely important. So first of all, uh, I think many people have the misconception that to be in this industry, industry you need to have like coding skills to build these video games, right? Uh, but you, but you uh, really announced the idea of storytelling. So ab- the ability to create a story and fascinating people by what the, you know, what the the content of the video games is. And the other thing I really like is the point that creating a video games is an act of design where your creativity uh, shouldn't be put inside constraints and boundaries just because, you know, the industry knows that that kind of formula works, uh, you know, to sell that product, but rather like go ahead with your creativity and, and say, okay, there are some people that might believe in what you are trying to achieve and, and don't just stop to what other people try to do because it's a formula that is working for years. So thank you so much for what you shared. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but but I think like I do use storytelling. I, I, I tell all my students that they need to practice their storytelling skills when it comes to data science. I think the same things uh, that you're going to mention, it, it, it is true also for a completely different industry, which is video games. So uh, that was very powerful. What I, what I would add just as a caution to the second point is first off that these patterns aren't guaranteed to succeed. They're just like enough people have succeeded or maybe there's just one person who like really succeeded with it and they're like, oh yeah, this works, which is for a young medium, a reasonable uh, approach or compromise taken but does seem ridiculous in the light of how many other mediums will see if something works multiple times before they commit to it as the overall pattern for an entire industry to take. The second thing that I would recommend that I would say as far as like my particular perspective on that area of the design that goes into a thing is that I believe that your process defines your product. and in many ways, if you don't have a defined process, this is another thing that afflicts video games often where we have this principle inside of the medium called find the fun. Uh, and the idea of just like find the fun, find the fun, find your product. If that is the primary factor for determining what type of game you make, you don't have a repeatable model for success. If it goes right, then it goes right. If it goes wrong, you don't know why, because all you did was kind of chase a scent like a dog going after a car. Uh, I believe that the same way that we, that we would design a video game, uh, looking into specific angles of narrative, art, music, marketing, all sort of the vectors of creation, the, that should also be applied to the business side of video games, to the way we organize our studios and structures. That is as much game design as the design of your game itself. And if we embrace those opportunities that are uniquely possible within the modular uh, exponential possibility space of video game development, then we are in a place to do some very, very special things. Can I ask you, I'll jump again into this because I, I mean, this is great. Uh, stuff. I, I just curious about um, what what are the criteria? What do you do to identify when somebody comes to a new project with a new potential video games? How do you say, okay, this is potentially can work, or this is 
uh, it's going to be hard to do or it's not going to be successful. Do you guys do any data collection on what people are looking about, like Google Trends or stuff like that? Or what is your process? Because uh, 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 that's something that might be interesting to people. Me personally or other studios? No, no, no. You, 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 you. So uh, as far as when it comes to making video games within my own organization, if that's the, what you're asking a question about. I would say that the primary starting point of the process is a deep emphasis on planning, improving out assumptions ahead of time. So the starting point for the concept is and sort of the process of the studio that means we can see whether or not something worked or not, or whether success is repeatable is my own creative perspective. Uh, I'm the creative director of pretty much everything that happens at Strange Scaffold, except for games which we publish. And how that emerges is I will percolate on an idea, a concept for months, weeks, years. And during that time, I'm thinking through what does what is this game? What is it communicating? What does it need? How does it need it? And I'll just while quietly working on other things, have that running in the background for years, have conversations with other creators inside and outside of the organization to refine that idea. And when I know for certain what is going to work, uh, how we're going to build it, and that I am the person who needs to build it, I've got this inner core desire that it's like, I have to make this thing, then uh, I move forward and I start to bring on teammates uh, and those discussion partners to say, okay, so how this idea of how all of this merges and how it all connects together, I have this where let's start proving out these assumptions. So bring in an artist to say, is this how the game can look? Uh, how does this emerge in reality? Because I'm not an artist. Uh, talking to a coder about here is the tent poles of this design here is what can flex what cannot i've worked on over 60 games in the past six years so i have a very large set of experiences to build to pull from in terms of both things that i've um, worked on or observed uh, things that i've played and also just the idea of what are those uh, decision points and built-in flex points of what can get smaller what can get bigger what can uh be removed before the project is no longer viable or becomes something else. Uh, I bring this to partners and basically every discipline, including crucially marketing and QA, because these are also pieces of development discipline, although they aren't always treated that way. Um, and in this way, as we start to build more of the game, talk through the ideas, refine the structure of it, uh, we end up cutting very little content through the development process because it's either eliminated before any time is put into it uh, or because it has been planned so precisely ahead of time, uh, people are not investing hours and hours and again, years of their life on a feature or a uh, artistic uh, vision or an overall idea that is not going to reach the final player. I think this is part of the reason people get burnt out in games because often when you make, say, a really beautiful animation for a video game, you don't know if that's going to end up in the final game. It could get cut tomorrow. It could be cut literally weeks before the game comes out. I've seen 
some pretty horrific uh, examples of not just waste, but of the human impact of seeing something that you invested heart and care into torn from the structure of the work that you've contributed to at the last minute. And so, yeah, shrink scaffold for the most part. I'm thinking it through. Yeah, that doesn't really happen at our studio because we just work differently. And uh, from this genesis of planning and of structure and of creative passion, we apply practicality. And from that practicality comes the final product, which is then built in an unusually efficient way despite an ambitious vision being involved because the entire process emphasizes what is this project, who are the people involved, how do we make sure that they're healthy and taken care of, and that the thing we are building, we know that it works at every step of the path. As you're talking about all of those things, I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing the industry shift towards, or at least what you're trying to accomplish, what a lot of industries are going through within work of saying, hey, there, there's actually humans here. We need to be able to provide, we need to make sure they're happy while they're working on this stuff. We're, we're needing to be able to kind of foster their creativity as full human beings through in this stuff. Do you think that that mentality allows you to do more creative things? I'm specifically thinking about trading human organs as a video game um, within that stuff. It is to me still one of the most poignant video games I've experienced when it speaks about stock market trading, capitalism, all, like everything, human cost within that one. But it's also still very fun, lighthearted and, and a good time. You're able to do some things that I personally haven't experienced within video games. Of course, I have a narrow scope, but do you think having that mentality or, or that, that fostering of creativity is allowing you to do more interesting things within this medium? I think uh, I, I, I wouldn't take uh, undue credit and say that we're doing more interesting things than other people because there's fascinating uh, advances occurring even within large temple releases from AAA publishers that don't get credit for revolutionizing quietly the way that they do in every uh, iteration of their projects. But I would say that at the very least, we're able to accomplish this in a human-focused way that because it's a core part of our process, for lack of a better term, we just prioritize it. And, and it does have an indelible impact on the types of things we build. So. Space World Organ Trading Simulator being a perfect example, um, because if that was the one project that the studio worked on and we worked on it for three years, I would feel much more terrified about betting my life on that. But because it's one of eight projects that we've got going at Train Scaffold and I do contracting and we have other diversified uh, revenue streams, including co-developments, and we just signed our first developer for publishing, I can commit to bringing ridiculous things to life and treating them with a gravity that they uh, that typically gets them ejected out of the room before they're even built because it has been so actively de-risked and treated as part of a wider portfolio instead of as the single project that is that is going to bring the studio uh, success or ruin. Speaking about reasons for burnout. I think this is another big thing that afflicts video games in particular, where you get people with such innate and potent passion and you put them in a room with a concept uh, and then 
because of the working structures of the medium, that's often the one concept their studio is working on for the next three to five plus years. Who's going to make a game called Space World at Oregon Treading Simulator for three years? I love the game. I love what we ended up building, but even, and I love weird things, but even I would say that's deeply unwise. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this analytical basis combined with a human-centered emphasis means that I can commit to ridiculous projects that otherwise might not be built. Uh, and build them in an efficient way that otherwise would be possible because so much of the structure and the, the design of the organization was built to make built, making things like that uniquely feasible. <laughs> so then as you're looking at this stuff and, and thinking about where you're going next within your, your studio and that stuff, do you... Is that a goal? Is it being becoming a triple A or at having one of those, you know, premier kind of, you know, commercials on TV for it? Or are you thinking, hey, we're going to be a little bit different and we're going to keep a, a broader portfolio where you can explore some of those different ones? Where's your kind of thought process on that? I would say that the place where my thought process is now is, um, Being perfectly frank, I, I see Strange Scaffold as a lifestyle business. I'm not here. I'm very excited for the things I'm making this year and next year uh, and so on. But my best game isn't the next game I'm going to make. It's the game that I make 20 years from now. Um, so the focus on what type of creativity I'm, I'm enabling and leaning into and how that supports a several year vision is top of mind. Uh, yeah, I, I, one of the reasons that I designed Stream Scaffold the way that I did and what we've been calling the constellation model is that I didn't wanna be responsible, for example, for anyone losing their healthcare. I didn't want uh, to build an organization where the people within it would have to worry about if the studio goes down because we made a game called Space World at Organ Trading Simulator, I can't pay my mortgage. So there are benefits that have come with that. There have been definite trade-offs, but start, starting from a philosophical basis to build software and to build structures that support the humanity of my collaborators is something that even if it ends up not working, I can, go to sleep at night uh, satisfied with what I do, well, satisfied with what I'm doing and who I'm doing it with and confident that the structure I've built to accomplish that is specifically designed that if everything falls apart, everyone involved, including myself, gets to walk away. Which then to, to your perspective on, on the, the video gaming experience for, for the players, for the consumers within that one, the customers there. Is there a video game trope, uh, you know, a cliche, something within a video game that when it's done, it just still annoys you or that you all kind of have like a red line in, in your games that we will not do that? I'm always interested in those things. Redline items for game design. This is an interesting one. Uh, I'd say a bug, an unfair bugbear that particularly gets to me as far as not the design of a game, but the back end production of a game 
is dynamic music. Uh, I love dynamic music systems. I have been involved in the creation of, se of several now. Uh, I think that they can be wonderfully, beautifully executed and uh, present the type of landscape for the discipline of audio that is unique to video games and special from that regard. However, it makes no sense to me that we have uh, teams of all sizes, including AAA, ripping out and building entirely new audio systems for every single release. Even if it's an evolution of a previous audio system, the fact that we are for what the player will at the end point just see as a single track, unless dynamic music is core to the vision of the game. The fact that so much money and time gets invested there over and over again, pretty much every indie team I'm a part of in particular seems to be making a different audio system. And I'm sitting here clutching my non-existent hair in my hands saying, but why? You can just make a track, it's fine. Put it on a loop. Make it not play sometimes and play sometimes. That's it. Uh, th that's of course a giant uh, reduction. Uh, and again, I do value and appreciate dynamic audio systems, but anything in a game uh, that is, how should I put this? Anything in a game that is work intensive, both to maintain and produce, but presents functionally no different result for the player is an example of waste that constantly uh, raises my gall. I'm always impressed when I see it. I have that moment of like, oh yeah, that was cool. And then the rest of my brain comes in and says, but why, why did we do this to ourselves? All right, so I want I want to have a real kind of I, I, we're we're getting kind of towards the end, so I want to switch to some some just more like just general fun ones. So first, what do you have a favorite video game? You personally, is there one or maybe top two, top three, some that you still go back to? Uh, I don't go back to video games often, but I would say that. Well, there's just so many I haven't played yet. I don't have time to go back yet. It's uh, <laughs> a great answer. <laughs> but I would say that something I go back to in my thoughts quite often uh, are games in the survival horror genre or mm. that are horror adjacent. So games like Dead Rising 2, uh, The Evil Within 2, uh, Resident Evil 7. Uh, I'm not a horror game aficionado per se, but when you look at survival horror or as things that utilize horror as a genre, they tend to operate with fascinating constraints and design considerations that are not immediately visible on the surface. Mm. Uh, and that ultimately bring in a wider, uh, that bring in a wider scope of ideas than their surface suggests. So the things that are, beautiful or fundamental to them are not immediately apparent, making them a great place for looking for ideas, honestly. Uh, all that said, I basically try to walk away from everything I play, watch, listen to with an idea, with something recognized about 
the people who made that game and also about the intention of the work itself because uh yeah whether i've spent two hours there or 20 or 200 if i do not in some way connect with the creators behind the work indirectly through what they have produced and what it says about the journey they went through to develop that thing uh, it doesn't just feel like a waste of time it feels like an, a missed opportunity and that's the same sort of thing i wish to present to players as quickly as possible within my own works when you play space warlord or an airport for aliens currently run by dogs i want it to feel like in the least creepy way possible i'm in the room and we're having this indirect conversation uh i think you can feel games that have been calibrated around that specific relationship because when they are you notice yourself yeah connecting to a human being behind a work even if you don't know who they are and that's one of the most potent uh uses of game design for me personally can i jump on this ras because because xavier has been like one of my favorite hosts i mean all, all my favorite guests so far on the show uh, truly the way you speak i think you're pretty young uh you are inspire, inspiring leaders and uh, even if you're practical in your decision the way that you value creativity is is, is just impressive to me uh i, I want to say a couple of things because i i can see every day uh new video games are released new applications are released and and the way that you are placed in this industry uh in your own world is it, just amazing to me the fact that you value and you even want to portray an emotional connection with the person that is on the other side it's it's just incredible uh, and it goes beyond video games it's like again you're just telling a story to somebody else and you want that somebody else to feel how you were feeling when you were thinking about that specific video game uh, i think i yeah that's that's just make me make me feel like that the type type of person that you are just by the way you're speaking about this stuff uh, and i think it's a great lesson to to all the other speakers sometimes we only focus about, okay, how much money we're going to make out of this project, or is this going to be successful, uh, monetarily successful, but there are other ways to me measure success. And the way that you're caring about your employees and, you know, the, the place your company, uh, I think is a great lesson learned for, for all of us on, on a daily basis. And, and, you know, gamification goes beyond, it goes also in teaching. You try to gamify and making people more interested about the materials that you cover. Uh, I think it's just a great message uh, to all of us. I want to thank you for that. Before I know Russ has some last minute question, but I really, really felt what I, uh, what you transmitted to me today. So thank you for that. Thank you. And I would actually say just very quickly before uh, Russ continues to take us down this path, <laughs> I think that to execute on this for things, including commercial success, this paradoxically requires counterintuitive and even bad decisions. And this is something that I've been obsessed mm. with recently in terms of um, exploring as a concept. There's a lot of things that people say are quote unquote bad game design uh, or make players frustrated. We've seen in particular uh, in the AAA space, this constricting of possibility space in terms of like your control setups more and more games are using functionally similar uh, control schemes. And that mm -hmm. is very useful for 
accessibility, for playability purposes. But you can also see how this is quietly eroding one of the primary tools the game designer has to personally speak to the player. Um, I'm going to use briefly one of my favorite examples of quote unquote bad game design and how it contributes to good game design and compelling game design, which is the Dead Rising series. Dead Rising 1, smash it on the original Xbox 360. Uh, Dead Rising 2 comes out also for the Xbox 360. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Dead Rising, it is a uh, open world or rather sandbox action adventure game where you can pick up anything and then in later titles can combine almost any two objects to create weapons to fight zombies and uh, make your way towards objectives and through a world. Uh, in the first game, you're in a giant shopping mall. Of course, a lot of opportunities. Second one, you're in like a Las Vegas type setting. Uh, this game series goes hard. So you're playing Dead Rising 1, you're playing Dead Rising 2. What it became known for was the wacky weapon combinations. Dead Rising 2 introduced them and you can attach like kitchen knives to a boxing glove and suddenly you're Wolverine. It becomes the series trademark, but the thing that was seen as holding it back from wider commercial viability, even though that both of these games had been smash hits, was the fact that they had a timer. And secretly, that timer was key to the rest of the game. Timers have been seen as antiquated. They're seen as uh, restrictive, as potentially adding anxiety to players. Take them out, get, a, get away from them. But Dead Rising 1 and 2 were fundamentally built around their timers. These timers uh, forced players to make interesting decisions and turned the game not into an action adventure game or into a game about killing zombies, but about fundamentally learning and understanding a space and using the elements of time, spatial awareness, and consideration of your own context within it to accomplish objectives and to find who you are in a wider world. It's fascinating. It's so tightly well designed and, and paced. And from the top down, from what I understand, Capcom said to make this series bigger, we have to take out the timer. So Dead Rising 3, they seriously de-emphasize the timer and change a lot of aspects of the design of the game. It sells less copies than Dead Rising 2. Dead Rising 4, they take out the timer entirely. And they're like, it's an open world game in a giant mall slash city. Don't you want this? Isn't this good? And it sells less than a million copies. The series goes from selling like 12 million copies to less than a million. When you consider that staggering dive, that isn't solely due to, say, brand corrosion, right? People not liking the third game or whatever else. Although there was, it, it shipped as an exclusive for a console, which didn't have as large of an install base. It still sold well and was regarded decently you have to consider that there's something missing to the core of the game. And so in Space Warlord Organ Training Simulator, a dog named Chad Shakespeare can buy out organs from underneath you and you can end up buying an organ you don't want by accident. There are people who still tell us, you gotta take this out, this is bad design. But in that moment, you have an emotional reaction. It is core to the way you experience that game to deal with the sudden complication, the monkey wrench of 
this dog has wronged me, first of all. And second, uh, now I have to find a way to get rid of this organ, or maybe I can use this for something else. You can, uh, if it's a, a certain type of organ, it can explode in your cargo hull or start leaching from your other, your other organs. So suddenly that's a whole thing. It's a cascading web of failure, but also interesting gameplay opportunities that arise from accidental clicks, from fast paced gameplay, from the possibility for frustration. And I say all of this to say, first of all, Dead Rising 1 and 2, really good. You might want to play them. But also second, that embracing counterintuitive design decisions to further a given creative vision is often essential to reach maximum uh, creative audience. But it's also one of the hardest things to sell within an organization to pitch as far as the design of an organization because it comes with the inherent possibility for uh, locking off pieces of your potential audience. But the reality is, you are never going to have 100% market share. If any, satisfying your 25% and even growing your 25% is so much more powerful than calibrating for 50% and finding that no one cares. Did you find as you've, as you've gone from someone who, from what I'm gathering, was very into video games and just wanting to get as many for free and to be able to explore for that experience, do you find you may have lost some of the um, passion for actually playing video games? Because because when you, when you said, it, hey, th- when I play a video game, I'm trying to connect with the creator and I'm looking for those, those elements where I, I do think some people at least just players may may not connect that I, i'm having that experience there do, has your experience with get video games shifted from there and and do you miss that or have you been able to appreciate video games more because of your larger perspective and experience within them i'd say i love playing video games more than ever honestly and this isn't the case for anyone uh for not for everyone. it's not the case for everyone in my medium but uh being able to understand that uh, what goes into specific pieces of a game just makes the experience more rich. So for two years, I was a columnist for PC Gamer Magazine. You could get on like newsstands. My name would be in a in my picture. It was cool. Uh, the column was called Inside Development. And every the part of the reason that I have the very practical approach that I do now is because for two years, I would interview people about seemingly simple things in video games like dialogue boxes. You just put a little graphic on the screen and put it, fill it with text, right? Wrong. It is a nightmarish landscape of exponential possibility and terror that will destroy you through a thousand invisible considerations. I would talk to, I talked to people about cameras, about rain, about just these seemingly basic pieces of game development and how they play into the worlds that we experience. And it turns out, not only are those stories fascinating slash terrifying, not only do they richen the experience of building those games, but as you hear more and more of those stories, you realize that there's this giant unaddressed knowledge gulf in the medium right now, which is you've got players who have a fundamentally different vocabulary than the developers they speak to. If you tell someone the term CGI for movies, 
they might understand the difference between green screen and blue screen and compositing and all sorts of different stuff. Or at a base level, they at least know a computer made these images. There is uh, an element of computer graphics that are involved in bringing the final product to the screen. In games, if I say the term skin weight, if I say the term rigid body collider, to most people, those terms are gobbledygook. If I say deferred rendering or forward rendering, to most people, that means functionally nothing, despite those being fundamental concepts to how games are presented on screen. And when you have that type of knowledge gap, when players do not have this same uh, basis of understanding or appreciating a game, it results in a environment for a non-positive culture where you have players and developers opposing each other because the developers feel like the audience doesn't understand them and they don't. And the audience thinks that the developers are looking down on them, which they can't help but do so because they're just, or be in fear of them because they're looking at a bunch of people with pitchforks and torches saying, ray tracing, ray tracing with no additional context. So uh, something I'm very passionate about is, yeah, I, I love playing video games still, but also more so than ever, I wanna talk about how games are built and what goes into their creation because the more tools everyone has, to understand that the fact that any game ships is a miracle, the better our culture is gonna become and the more productive our conversations could be around how we can make those games even better. Zavier, is, is there <laughs> any place where you recommend people like to look at if, if they wanna get into the industry to kind of learn their vocabulary, to, to be one day like be able to come by you and pitch you an idea so that they don't look like, like oh, this guy doesn't know anything or how he's gonna actually make a video game. Um, I would say as far as learning more about game development, uh, part of the reason that we have the knowledge gap we currently do is because a lot of that information is presented as a black box to be frank. Call of Duty will say, we've got new skin rendering techniques but they don't talk about the considerations that go into that. And so you might have uh, between Assassin's Creed, uh, was it Assassin's Creed Unity? No, it was Assassin's Creed. It was one of the Assassin's Creed and then Assassin's Creed Syndicate. They had completely revised their climbing model and it had these incremental improvements. It required years of work, but everybody, saw it as, oh yeah, it's Assassin's Creed still, and didn't talk about it at all, and if anything, talked about how it was stale. And that really hurt those developers. I talked to them personally. Um, a lot of those stories only emerge if you've been in the industry long enough. Uh, so I would acknowledge that there is both the gap of vocabulary as well as a lot of the tools to build it, but if you do want to try building that, one of the easiest ways is just voraciously looking for sources to build up that vocabulary. Look at when animators talk about the discipline, look at when coders talk about their considerations, look not for video essays from an enthusiast perspective that talk about these things and how they're built because they can often be wrong. Uh, they weren't there in the room, but yeah, look for when developers 
get the rare opportunity to talk about how and why something came together. Uh, and when you get those nuggets of knowledge, value them. Uh, look for opportunities to expand on those specific terms because the knowledge is not entirely hidden. It's just currently, if we're being completely frank, there is very little incentive to propagate such knowledge because as soon as you open up your door, if you're the only person opening up the door, you expose yourself to a unfair criticism uh, that can impact you and your team. So I wanna, I wanna end this wonderful conversation on something that I'm very intrigued by, or at least a question that I think is, is, is interesting. Is there a piece of, I'm gonna define it as culture out there, movie, song, book, whatever, that you would like to see either by your studio or some other studio actually adapted to a video game. I'm specifically thinking about the the new Harry Potter games coming out, some of those things there that kind of jump there. Is there anything that, that you're pulling for someone to take on? The cabin in the woods, and here's why. Nice. <laughs> Okay. The if most you, if you all of, haven't seen that movie, go go watch it immediately. It is one of the greatest movies ever. <laughs> it is a uh, it is a tongue in cheek look at horror tropes through the lens of what if there was an organization organizing a cabin in the woods scenario where a bunch of teens get into uh, a horrible situation and get killed off one by one to serve an eldritch elder god, and it's just a normal bureaucracy. People in like suits and ties and casual Friday and water coolers uh, placing bets on whether the redneck, uh, the, whether the redneck zombies or the uh, aquatic mermaids are going to end up tearing these teams apart. The idea of running that organization, having these kind of like blase folks in slacks and like business casual attire, like drinking around water coolers and having these conversations making these things, managing how much food can we afford to feed the mermaid? Oh no, it ate the handler. We need to buy a new handler. Uh, oh gosh, the ritual, it's time for the ritual. Okay, how do we make these teens do something sinful so that we can punish them? That is a fascinating, uh, just conceptual exercise. And I would love to see uh, another developer uh, tackle it at some point. I've been rolling over in my head how I might do it. I still haven't quite, as I mentioned, the percolating process. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but uh, when I get it, you will know. I'm, I'm very excited for all of that. Uh, Zalavir, this has been amazing, truly. I, I thank you so much for your time. Um, as always, everyone, thank you for listening. Please feel free to follow The Gateway on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of those wonderful places. Our wonderful sponsor, Northern Illinois University. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Biagio, as always, it's wonderful to do these events with you. Again, everyone, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for being here.